0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries Podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and we're glad to have you with us today. Today, the city of San Antonio, Texas, where this story takes place, is very proud of its heritage and offers a wide array of hotels, restaurants, sites, and entertainment for those who travel there. Over 14 million people visit the San Antonio Riverwalk each year. It's actually a park filled with lights, attractions, river rides, concerts, and restaurants, all set among winding pathways and bridges flanking the San Antonio River, and all the brainchild of a young design genius with a vision. His name? Robert H. 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 Hugman. It's amazing what one man or woman with a vision can do. And I say woman because when Hugman shared his ideas with the women of San Antonio who were in charge of oversight and development, that's when the pocketbooks opened and a dream became a reality. In 1921, the resulting floods from a hurricane had devastated San Antonio, killing dozens and setting San Antonio back on its heels financially. Hugman, a young architect, had lived in New Orleans for three years and was impressed with how they recreated the French Quarter there, combining the cultural heritage of the town with its history and giving the city its own unique flavor unlike any other. Hugman was able to solve the flooding problem, restore a sense of pride and heritage in San Antonio, And create a mecca for tourists all in one fell swoop. The Riverwalk is open 365 days a year and busy as well. As I write, Christmas of 2021 is now in sight. The holiday lights on the Riverwalk will be dazzling visitors and weather permitting there will be boats packed full of Christmas carolers winding their way past crowded restaurant patios. Quite a different sight than the one Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca, a shipwrecked Spanish explorer, received when he first saw the San Antonio River in 1536, 71 years before Captain Smith first saw the Chesapeake Bay. San Antonio, and much of Texas for that matter, was built and fought for by men with visions. In 1820, Moses Austin petitioned the Spanish governor in San Antonio for a permit to settle Americans in Texas, and it was granted. By 1825, U.S. immigrant families began purchasing land on the river in San Antonio. By 1830, however, Mexico declared U.S. immigration illegal, and by 1835, Stephen Austin and a revolutionary army led by Jim Bowie and others laid siege to San Antonio de Bejar, and now blood had been spilled, and there was no turning back. And now, it's morning of March 6, 1836, as Santa Ana, the self-proclaimed ruler of Mexico, ordered his troops to attack the Alamo mission and kill every last one of the Texians and Tejanos who had raised their flag there. Travis had made every effort to bring in reinforcements. The last messages had been sent by couriers. The defenses, what there were of them, were in place. And 182 men were ready to spend what looked like the last hours of their lives defending their right to be there. Keep in mind, too, that Santa Ana was no beneficent ruler that toiled for the benefit of all. He was a ruthless, self-aggrandizing despot with an army which had no compulsions about killing everyone who got in its way. Outside the walls of the Alamo, Santa Ana had placed four columns of entry men with about 800 men in each column. Two columns would attack the northeast and northwest corners, another would strike the east wall, and the fourth column would attack the vulnerable Palisade on the south wall. The cavalry, about 300 strong, would be held to the east to pick off the Texans if they tried to break out. Santa Ana would direct the battle with the fierce Zapadores, the fighting engineers included in the 400 man reserve. In all, Santa Ana had access to nearly 4,000 men. He may have attacked the Alamo with 1,200 to 600 men, but he had nearly 4,000 men there ready to fight. And he considered them disposable as well. And they followed him out of fear, not out of respect. At about 5 a.m., just as the eastern sky began to take on a red glow, someone yelled, Viva Santa Ana! and the bugler sounded the attack. There was an all-out rush on the four sides of the Alamo. Travis ran for the north wall. The gunners atop the barracks opened up on the rushing Mexican army, and cannon fire boomed from all around the perimeter. The riflemen, most of whom had loaded and stacked muskets near them, carefully picked their targets. Cannons fired mixed shot, and waves of Mexican soldiers fell as if cut down by an invisible sight. In the initial moments of the assault, Mexican troops were at a disadvantage. Their column formation allowed only the front rows of soldiers to fire safely. Unaware of the dangers, the untrained recruits in the ranks blindly fired their guns, injuring or killing the troops in front of them. The tight concentration of troops also offered an excellent target for the Texian artillery. Lacking canister shot, the Texians had filled their cannon with any metal they could find, including door hinges, nails, and chopped up horseshoes, essentially turning the cannons into giant shotguns. According to the diary of José Enrique de la Peña, A single cannon volley did away with half the company of chasseurs from Toluca. Francisco Duque, leading the charge against the north wall, fell from his horse after suffering a wound in his thigh and was almost trampled by his own men. General Manuel Castrillon quickly assumed command of Duque's column. Travis jumped onto the north parapet, slung his jacket on a peg by a cannon, and cheered his men on, swinging his sword over his head. He fired both barrels of his shotgun into the mass of men below and then took a bullet in the forehead which sent him tumbling down off the parapet. He fell sitting up against the wall, his eyes wide open and with a look of astonishment on his face. Although some in the front of the Mexican ranks wavered, soldiers in the rear pushed them on. The officers whipped the men's backs with the flats of their sabers. As the troops massed against the walls, Texians were forced to lean over the walls to shoot, leaving them exposed to Mexican fire. The Mexicans were bringing ladders, but few of the Mexican ladders actually reached the walls. The few soldiers who were able to climb the ladders were quickly killed or beaten back. As the Texians discharged their previously loaded rifle, they found it increasingly difficult to reload while attempting to keep Mexican soldiers from scaling the walls. And remember, this was 1836. Those were single-shot muskets. The Mexican soldiers withdrew and regrouped, but their second attack was repulsed. 15 minutes into the battle, they attacked a third time. During the third strike, Romero's column, aiming for the east wall, was exposed to cannon fire and shifted to the north, mingling with the second column, led by General Kaz, which, having taken fire from Texans on the west wall, had also veered north. When Santa Ana saw that the bulk of his army was massed against the north wall, for a moment, he feared a rout. Panicked, he sent the reserves into the same area. The Mexican soldiers closest to the north wall realized that the makeshift wall contained many gaps and toeholds. One of the first to scale the 12-foot wall was General Juan Amador. At his challenge, his men began swarming up the wall. Amador opened the postern in the north wall, allowing Mexican soldiers to pour into the complex, and that was the beginning of the end for the Alamo. Others climbed through gun ports in the west wall, which had few occupiers remaining. As the Texian occupiers abandoned the north wall and the northern end of the west wall, Texian gunners at the south end of the mission turned their cannon towards the north and fired into the advancing Mexican soldiers. This left the south end of the mission unprotected and within minutes Mexican soldiers had climbed the walls and killed the gunners gaining control of the Alamo's 18-pound cannon. By this time Romero's men had taken the east wall of the compound and were pouring into the cattle pen located adjacent to the corral which was located next to the chapel. Inside the chapel, 18-year-old Susanna Dickinson was huddled with the non-combatants, her child in her arms. Her husband rushed in for one brief moment, saying, Great God, Sue, the Mexicans are inside our walls. If they spare you, spare our child. He kissed her, and that was the last time she saw him alive. As previously planned, most of the Texans had fallen back to the barracks and the chapel. Holes had been carved in the walls to allow the Texans to fire. Unable to reach the barracks, Texians stationed along the west wall headed west for the San Antonio River. When the cavalry charged them, those Texians took cover and began firing from a ditch. General Seizma was forced to send reinforcements and the Texians were eventually killed. General Seizma reported that this skirmish involved 50 Texians. The occupiers in the cattle pen retreated into the horse corral. After discharging their weapons, the small band of Texians scrambled over the low wall circled behind the church and raced on foot for the East Prairie, which appeared empty. As the Mexican cavalry advanced on them, Almiron Dickinson and his artillery crew turned a cannon around and fired into the cavalry, no doubt inflicting casualties. Nevertheless, all of the escaping Texans were killed. The last Texan group to remain in the open were Crockett and his men, defending the low wall in front of the church. Unable to reload, they used their rifles as clubs and fought with knives. After a volley of fire and a wave of Mexican bayonets, the few remaining Texians in this group fell back towards the church. The Mexican army now controlled all of the outer walls and the interior of the Alamo compound, except for the church and rooms along the east and west walls. Mexican soldiers turned their attention to a Texian flag waving from the roof of one building. Four Mexicans were killed before the flag of Mexico was raised in that location. Felix Nunez, a Mexican sergeant, later described seeing an American with dark complexion wearing a long buckskin coat and a round cap without any bill made out of fox skin, with the tail hanging down the back, biting desperately, attempting to move from the southwest corner to the long barracks. Nunez says that this man had a charmed life during those few seconds. Of the many, many soldiers that took aim and fired at him, none had hit him. On the contrary, he never missed a shot. He fired and reloaded, killing at least eight of our men Nunez would later say, besides wounding several others. Finally, a lieutenant sprang over the wall behind that man and dealt him a deadly blow with his sword, just above the right eye, which felled him to the ground where he was pierced by at least 20 bayonets. For the next hour, the Mexican army worked to secure complete control of the Alamo. Many of the remaining occupiers were ensconced in the fortified barracks rooms. In the confusion, The Texans had neglected to spike their cannon before retreating, and Mexican soldiers then turned the cannon towards the barracks. As each door was blown off, Mexican soldiers would fire a volley of muskets into the dark room and then charge in for hand-to-hand combat. Too sick to participate in the battle, Jim Bowie likely died in bed. Eyewitnesses to the battle gave conflicting accounts of his death. Some witnesses, including Bowie's horrified sister-in-law who was there, maintained that they saw several Mexican soldiers enter Bowie's room bayonet him, and then carry him alive on top of their bayonets from the room, the blood soaking all the men who were carrying his body above them. In the blood carnage of that morning, there were no limits to the atrocities the Mexicans committed upon the defenders. The last of the Texans to die were the eleven men manning the two twelve-pounder cannons in the chapel. A shot from the eighteen-pounder cannon destroyed the barricades at the front of the church, and Mexican soldiers entered the building after firing an initial musket volley. Dickinson's crew fired their cannon from the apse into the Mexican soldiers at the door. With no time to reload, the Texians, including Dickinson, Gregorio Esparza, and James Bonham, grabbed rifles and fired before being bayoneted to death. Texian Robert Evans, the master of ordnance, had been tasked with keeping the gunpowder from falling into Mexican hands. Wounded, he crawled towards the powder magazine but was killed by a musket ball with his torch only inches from the powder. Had he succeeded, the blast would have destroyed the church and in all likelihood killed the women and children hiding in the sacristy. As soldiers approached the sacristy, one of the young sons of defender Anthony Wolfe stood to pull a blanket over his shoulders. In the dark, Mexican soldiers mistook him for an adult and killed him. Possibly the last Texian to die in battle was Jacob Walker, who had entered the room in which Susanna Dickinson and her daughter Angelina had been sequestered, was followed by Mexicans, and was bayoneted in front of Dickinson and her daughter. Another Texian, Brigido Guerrero, also sought refuge in the sacristy. Guerrero, who had deserted from the Mexican army in December of 1835, was spared after convincing the soldiers he was a Texian prisoner. Guerrero had kept that a closely held secret until 1874, when he testified that he had fought with Bowie participating in the siege of Bejar and the Battle of Concepcion. A year later, he received a pension. By 6.30 a.m., the battle for the Alamo was over. Mexican soldiers inspected each corpse, bayoneting any body that moved. Even with all the Texans dead, Mexican soldiers continued to shoot, some killing each other in the confusion. Mexican generals were unable to stop the bloodlust and appealed to Santa Ana for help. Although the general did show himself, the violence was allowed to continue, and the buglers were finally ordered to sound a retreat. For 15 minutes after that, soldiers continued to fire into the dead bodies. At 6.30 a.m., nearly an hour and a half after the battle had begun, a Mexican officer appeared in the doorway of Susanna Dickinson's room. "'Is there a Mrs. Dickinson here?' he asked. He had been sent by Santa Anna, who had promised to spare Mrs. Dickinson's life at the pleading of one of her friends in San Antonio. When she hesitated, the officer snapped, "'If you value your life, speak up.' She then stepped forward, carrying Angelina." The soldiers who had killed Walker seized her, but the officer drew his weapon and ordered them to stand down and let her alone, that the general had need of her. He then led her out of the blood-soaked sacristy across the plaza, which was littered with bodies. As he did so, a shot rang out and a bullet struck her right calf, causing her to fall. She was now bleeding heavily. The officer ordered his men to carry her and Angelina. In her pain, shock, and fear, she remembered very little, but one vision was clear in her mind. She recognized Colonel Crockett lying dead and mutilated between the church and the two-story barracks. She also remembered seeing his coonskin cap lying by his side. Santa Anna was outside, surveying the carnage. Travis's slave Joe was asked to identify the bodies of Travis and Crockett. Susanna's leg was bandaged, and she was given instructions from Santa Anna to go to the Texans and tell them that this would be their fate if they continued to resist. She was given a horse, and with Angelina in her arms and old Joe by her side, she set out for Gonzales to carry to Texas the story of the Alamo. We'll return right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. At the Cibolo Crossing on the road east to Gonzales, the little group met Erastus Deaf Smith, Colonel J.C. Neal and Captain Henry Wax Carnes, who had been sent by Colonel Houston to see how Travis was doing in San Antonio, and she told them of the fall of the Alamo. Today there's a plaque located there at Cibola Crossing on the Gonzales Road near Lavernia, Wilson County, placed there in her memory. Susanna and her daughter were escorted to Houston's camp at Gonzales, where she delivered the story directly to Sam Houston in front of a crowd of Texians, many of them wives of the defenders of the Alamo. Their cries of pain and shock upon hearing the news as each detail was brought forward were harrowing, as one soldier who was present would write later. From Houston's camp to Washington, and then to the world, news of the fall of the Alamo spread like a prairie fire, and the emotional impact was intense. In Texas it was now understood that there were no alternatives, and every man who could fight was counted upon to do so. The slaughter at the Alamo lit a fire of rage, and Texans, as well as all those who called themselves Americans, became caught up in it. Meanwhile, Santa Ana's army was marching on Gonzales. Santa Ana had divided his army into three distinct forces, one of which had caught up with Fannin and his 350 men, and wiped them out. Most of Fannin's men, including Fannin, had been convinced to surrender, but they were lined up and executed under Santa Ana's orders. Houston now had the last army of Texas under his command, and if he lost, all would be lost. Houston was low on supplies and reinforcements, and although his men wanted to fight now, Houston knew they would be fighting at a disadvantage. At eleven o'clock on a starless night, Houston led his troops east from Gonzales on a retreat from the approaching enemy, a move which confounded his army and many of his officers who wanted to stand and fight now. This move was later coined the runaway scrape because it looked to many as if he were running away. As Houston's column of men filed out of Gonzales, the citizens of Gonzales, their fate's tied to that of his army, packed their possessions and followed, not wanting to be caught there defenseless by Santa Ana and his army. Houston's plan was to fall back 50 miles and cross the Colorado River, where he would be near the most populated part of Texas and thus have access to fresh recruits as well as food to feed his army. He would also have a river behind him, which would prove a barrier between him and Santa Ana. The weather was terrible. Cold rain continued to pour as the men marched and grumbled. Rumors began to fly that Houston was marching them toward Louisiana, where he would join up with the Federal Army. Houston's army had had enough of backing up. The men wanted to fight. Finally, the rain stopped temporarily and Houston called all his men within the sound of his voice. My friends, he announced. I am told that evil-disposed persons have reported that I am going to march you to the Redlands, meaning the Louisiana border. This is false. I'm going to march you to the Brazos bottom near Grosses, where you can whip the enemy ten to one and where we can get an abundant supply of corn. Then the cold rain started again, and they marched three more days until they were camped on the west bank of the Brazos River opposite Grosses Plantation. And it was there that they learned of Fannin's demise and the slaughter of his surrendered army. Houston knew that the men were doubting his courage and his ability to lead. All he had done so far was retreat. He had not come to the rescue of the men at the Alamo. He had not proven his leadership on the battlefield. Here on the Brazos the weather cleared, the army grew, and they were fed. As far as uniforms went, they had none. Most of them were dirty rags which represented all they had left. Houston's eyes and ears were his scouts led by Captain Henry Wax Carnes the most notable among these being Deaf Smith, who had the eyes, if not the ears. Deaf Smith's hearing, which had been caused by a childhood disease, had sharpened his other senses acutely. His eyesight was particularly keen, and his sixth sense was without equal. He could detect people and animals long before other scouts could. Married to a young Mexican girl, he spoke faultless Spanish and was so thoroughly versed in Mexican customs and manners that his very appearance was Mexican all of which made him invaluable to Houston. As a scout and a spy, Smith could go anywhere. He was one of a half-dozen men upon whom Houston placed the future of his command, and his loyalty to him was unswerving. Houston spent his nights studying maps and the reports of his scouts. Houston's biggest weakness was his inability to share his plans with his commanders. He took everything upon himself. For three weeks in April, Houston played a deadly game of cat and mouse with Santa Ana, his objective being to lure Santa Anna into a fight from which he could not escape. Although he was outnumbered, Houston knew that his men desperately wanted to avenge the death of their fellow Texians at the Alamo and at Goliad, where Fannin's men had been killed. Houston had his obstacles, which ranged from generals who wanted and did go their own way, to men who threatened to mutiny if Houston didn't turn and fight. To them he offered a quick path to a freshly dug grave if they refused to see the light. When he crossed the river at Lynch's Ferry, the grumbling stopped. They knew they were crossing the river to fight. At this point, the fragile Republic of Texas was hanging on a series of slim chances. Not quite 60 miles away, the Mexican dragoons were approaching New Washington, where the members of the new Texas cabinet, who had just drawn up a new constitution, were scrambling to escape the approach of one of Santa Ana's deadly columns. But they'd been too slow. One of Houston's scouts, a young man named Mike McCormick, spotted the fast-approaching Mexican-mounted dragoons and rushed to the waterside at New Washington, where Texas cabinet member Burnett and his wife and several other members were gathered. McCormick shouted a warning, and the group rushed toward a rowboat, climbing into it and desperately rowing, but they were still only a few yards from the shore and within easy rifle range of the dragoons. The dragoons' commander, Colonel Juan El Monte, apparently had a conscience and ordered his men not to fire at the group because there was a woman in the midst. Of course, that hadn't stopped at least one Mexican soldier in the case of Susanna Dickinson as she was being led out of the Alamo, but it did happen here. The dragoons held their fire, and the fledgling government of the new Republic of Texas escaped unharmed. If the Republic had nine lives, that was one lost. You might remember Almonte was the first to breach the walls of the Alamo just days before. Santa Anna arrived in New Washington with 750 troops on April 18th, "'sending messages to his troops to bring up reinforcements "'and making plans to trap Houston at Lynch's Ferry not ten miles away. "'And here chance played a part again. "'Santa Anna was feeling confident, "'so confident that he chose to dally for two days at Morgan's plantation "'with a comely slave girl named Emily, "'who did her best to delay Santa Anna for the cause of freedom "'in which she was secretly invested. "'Legend has it that she inspired the song "'The Yellow Rose of Texas.' According to legend, it was this young lady to whom Texas owes its freedom. So the next time you hear that song, keep that in mind. She, as well as others, black, white, part Indian, poets, scholars, drifters, gamblers, Tejanos, river rats, lawyers, farmers, dreamers, and backwoodsmen, all own a piece of that Texas history. Again, Chance played a role when Deaf Smith intercepted a Mexican courier carrying a saddlebag full of dispatches for Santa Ana. The bag had the name William Barrett Travis stamped into the leather. When this was brought to Houston's camp, the men wanted to kill the courier, but Houston restrained them. The message indicated that Santa Anna was at Fort Washington with 750 men waiting for reinforcements, which would number another 500 troops. So now Houston saw Santa Anna's troop strength, and he saw his opportunity. His 850 men could whoop 1500 if he could choose the place, and the time, and he did, on the 19th of April. Now Houston raised his hoarse voice for only the second time since this long retreat had begun. Victory is certain, he shouted, trust in God and fear not. The victims of the Alamo and the names of those who were murdered at Goliad cry out for vengeance. Remember the Alamo! Remember Goliad, And the ragged, dirty, but determined men shouted back the same words, raising their muskets in unison. "'An hour before the men broke camp the next morning, "'Houston was to write a friend. "'This morning we are in preparation to meet Santa Ana. "'It is the only chance of saving Texas. "'We go to conquer. "'It is wisdom growing out of necessity to meet the enemy now. "'Every consideration enforces it. "'No previous occasion would justify it.' "'They crossed the Buffalo Bayou on roughly built rafts "'and once reaching the Harrisburg side, "'remained in the woods until dark.' They then used the cover of darkness to cross the wooden bridge over Vince's bayou until 2 a.m., and then slept on wet grass for a few hours, afterwards continuing their march. Just after dawn on April 20th, they approached Lynchburg on the San Jacinto River, and without crossing, took control of Lynch's ferry. Houston then sent out his scouts, and withdrew the bulk of his army into the cover of the woods. From the woods they could see the smoke burning from New Washington as Santa Anna gleefully burned the city to ashes. "'turning his army north toward Lynch's Ferry. "'He didn't believe that Houston would cross the San Jacinto "'and leave his armies back to the river "'where they could be bottled up, "'but Santa Anna had been lured into thinking "'that Houston was afraid to fight him. "'The weeks of constant retreat had done that. "'Santa Ana's men were shocked as they neared Lynch's Ferry "'and saw that Houston's army was on their side of the river, "'on a point of land between Buffalo Bayou and the San Jacinto. "'From here there was no retreat.' The Texans were massed in the woods between Santa Ana and Buffalo Bayou, and between the two armies there stood a grassy plain known as the San Jacinto Plain. Houston had two six-pound cannon, the cannon's nickname, the Twin Sisters, located in the field. The Mexicans brought forward their one six-pounder and started firing. The shots went over the tops of the cannons and into the trees. Houston's artillerymen fired the first shots from the Twin Sisters and luckily scored a direct hit, blowing two dragoons to pieces a shot which set the tone for what was to soon happen. Santa Anna came into sight on his white horse, rallying his men, as he tried to draw Houston's men out into the open, but Houston's men spent the entire day sniping from the woods. They went to sleep that night in the woods, again grumbling that Houston would not fight. In fact, he had left orders not to be awakened until 8 a.m. the next morning. At 9 a.m. Santa Anna received his reinforcements, 500 men under the command of General Cause, which raised Santa Ana's numbers to 1,250 men. Deaf Smith had seen Cause's men coming and had alerted Houston as to their arrival. Houston had wanted Santa Ana at full strength when he bested him. He didn't want to be halfway into a fight when reinforcements arrived. Houston ate his breakfast while his commanders, John Wharton and Mosley Baker, complained to him of his inaction and seeming lack of desire to get out and fight. "'Houston had his way of aggravating the living hell out of his commanders. "'One of his men later commented that later in the day "'Houston walked up to some of his men at the campfires "'and asked them if they wanted to fight, "'to which, of course, they all responded, "'We're ready. We've been ready. "'He ordered them to eat their midday dinners "'and promised them a fight that day "'because he didn't want any hungry men out there on the battlefield. "'He then ordered Deaf Smith and a detail of men "'to go behind Houston's lines and burn down Vince's bridge.' their only means of retreat. That left Houston's men with no options but to fight to the death. By 3 p.m. the Texians were rested, well fed, and their weapons primed. The sun was warm. The breeze was light. It was a good day to fight. Houston's army formed two lines stretching some nine football fields long along the edge of the woods. Santa Ana's men were one mile away on the far side of the plain, behind Breastworks. Blocked by water, their only escape brought a slow one to the southwest, and the Texan cavalry, led by Mirabeau Lamar, was positioned to cut that off if it happened. To their left was their band, consisting of three fifes and a drum, with four companies of infantry. Burleson's 1st Regiment was positioned to the left of the artillery, and Sherman's 2nd Regiment to their left. The Mexican camp was silent. Texian lookouts reported nothing moving. It looked as though the entire Mexican army was taking a siesta. And for the most part they were. They had been awake before dawn expecting an attack and the exhausted troops were now sleeping, including Santa Anna, who was lying under the shade of a tree having opium dreams, no doubt dreams featuring himself as the leader of the known world. It was 4:30 pm April 21st, 1836, when the twin sisters were rolled within 200 yards of the Mexican lines and opened up. The drums rolled and the Fifes broke into a popular ballad called "Will You Come to Bower?" Someone had a droll sense of humor. Every man in Houston's command began shouting, Remember the Alamo, and the sound rolled off from his army as if it were cannon fire. Then they charged. They weren't shooting. They ran, not bothering to kneel and shoot, only wanting to crush Santa Anna's men at close quarters. When they were within 60 yards of the barricades, Deaf Smith rose up in front of them, urging them on. Their line was 1,500 yards wide and coming at a run. At this point, Santa Ana and a cadre of his officers turned tail on their troops and galloped away into the woods. They had turned tail and run. Several Texians saw them escaping but lost them as they disappeared into the trees, and turned back to the fight. At 40 yards, Houston's horse Saracen was shot in the chest, and Houston hit the ground running as his horse collapsed beneath him. On his right, his cavalry had met with the Mexican dragoons and were taking a terrible toll on the newly awakened Mexicans. Riderless horses careened through Houston's lines. A soldier caught one, and Houston swung back into the saddle, catching a musket ball in his right ankle as he did so, the ball passing through his leg and felling his horse, whereupon at that point he had to grab a third horse. From there he galloped straight into the Mexican barricade, a five-foot-high pile of saddles and packing cases from which the Mexican soldiers were already fleeing. The Texians rushed straight over the barricade, yelling, with rifles and long fighting knives in their hands. The Mexicans fled into the trees and were pursued by Houston's men and Houston himself, whose boot was overflowing with his own blood as he rode and slashed at retreating Mexicans. Mexican General Castrillon jumped on an ammunition box and tried to rally his men, but was cut down with musket balls. Deaf Smith's horse stumbled, throwing the scout over his head and landing him at the foot of a Mexican lieutenant, who slashed at him with a saber. Smith leveled his gun at him and it misfired, just as fellow scout John Nash rode his horse over the Mexican, seizing his sword and killing him with it. From then on it was hand-to-hand fighting in the woods, with Houston's men doing most of the killing as they exacted revenge upon the Mexicans for what they had done at the Alamo and at Goliad. The battle lasted only 18 minutes, and the mop-up was just as violent and one-sided as the Alamo had been, the only difference being that Houston's men were doing the bayoneting this time. The greatest carnage took place as the fleeing Mexicans came to the intersection of Peggy Lake and Buffalo Bayou, where their retreat bogged down, and they were cut down like trapped animals in a pen. The dead horses and Mexicans literally formed a bridge across the bayou, across which a few survivors struggled to get away. Some of Houston's officers ordered the men to stop the carnage, but they were blood-crazy, and the killing continued. By sunset, the carnage was complete. The guns fell silent, and Houston stopped to get his leg patched up while taking casualty reports. Incredibly, the Texans had lost two dead and 23 wounded, of whom six would eventually die. Mexican casualties were approximately 600 dead and 600 taken prisoner, so yes, at least half of the Mexicans' lives were spared, unlike the Alamo and Goliad. But Houston was worried when he discovered that Santa Ana had escaped, his biggest worry being that Santa Ana would be able to rally reinforcements, and Houston did not want that fight now. He had to find Santa Ana and force him to surrender his army, and to do that, he needed him alive. Houston did not know that Santa Anna had left his companions behind, that he had lost his bearings and was wandering for hours seeking the road to Fort Bend and his waiting troops. He abandoned his black stallion, a rare fine horse, but a horse that would have given him away to anyone who discovered him. He wrapped himself in a blue, discarded Mexican private's jacket and wandered through the bayou, eventually running into a Texan search party. Chance had again played its hand Houston's way. The scouts, Alfred H. Miles, David Cole, and a man named Vermillion, discovered him hiding in the tall grass and in less than a minute had identified him as an officer, for under the blue private's jacket, Santa Anna was still wearing his elegant linen shirt with jeweled studs. When they took him to the prisoner's compound, the Mexican prisoners greeted him with El Presidente, and, and Colonel Hockley took him directly to Sam Houston. When the officers surrounding Houston saw that it was Santa Anna, they wanted his head, but Houston held them back. "'Santa Anna began to tremble and asked for his medicine box, "'and Houston patiently sent an aide to Santa Anna's camp "'to retrieve the box from his tent. "'When it was brought to Santa Anna, he opened it "'and replenished his courage with a dose of opium. "'Santa Anna knew that Houston wanted him alive, "'and he was playing his cards as deftly as he could. "'Houston roared at him when he asked for Houston's generosity, "'saying that it was not forgiveness that Santa Anna "'had shown at the Alamo or at Goliad. "'Houston wanted to see Santa Anna die slowly.' but felt that the war could end now if Santa Anna were to surrender his forces, and that that would not be so if he were killed or refused to capitulate. Houston agreed to spare Santa Anna's life if he would sign an order of armistice, and Santa Anna did so. Deaf Smith and Edward Burleson delivered one copy to Santa Anna's men at Fort Bend. Upon its receipt, 4,000 Mexican soldiers marched out of Texas. To make sure they stayed out, Houston kept Santa Anna prisoner until November, and then let him go. The man who had coldly ordered the deaths of the survivors of the Alamo and Goliad was set free, where he returned to the privacy of his home in Veracruz for one year. After that, he returned to Mexico City, where he again rallied his forces and took control of Mexico, but he was never able to attack Texas again. By May of 1837, Houston, his leg wound recovered from treatment in New Orleans, returned to Texas to run for President of the New Republic. We'll return with the story of the ghosts of the Alamo, right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. In San Antonio de Bejar, the largest part of the population viewed the Alamo complex as more than just a battle site. It represented decades of assistance, as a mission, a hospital, and a military post. As the English-speaking population increased, the complex became best known for the battle. Focus is centered primarily on the Texian occupiers, with little emphasis given to the role of the Tejano soldiers who served in the Texian army or the actions of the Mexican army. In the early 20th century, the Texas legislature purchased the property and appointed the Daughters of the Republic of Texas as permanent caretakers of what is now an official state shrine. In front of the church, in the center of Alamo Plaza, stands a cenotaph designed by Pompeo Copini, which commemorates the Texians and Tejanos who died during the battle. According to Bill Groneman's Battlefields of Texas, the Alamo has become the most popular tourist site in Texas. But the souls at the Battle of the Alamo still remain, haunting the historic mission now as they did even then. The Alamo was abandoned until 1849, several years after Texas was annexed to the U.S. following the Mexican-American War. Since that fateful day in 1836, the Alamo has become a hotbed of supernatural activity, and as San Antonio began to grow around it, More and more people became aware of the spirits which occupied the old mission's walls. When the first newspaper came to San Antonio, the San Antonio Express News, it became the collection point for the many reports of strange sightings in and around the mission as it performed various functions for the local government. In the 1890s, the Alamo was used by the U.S. Army as a quartermaster's depot while Fort Sam Houston was being built. In one 1894 article in the San Antonio Express News, Night-duty officers of the compound reported hearing the same measured tread of someone crossing the south side of the roof, always from east to west and always on drizzly nights. When they went up to check, of course, no one was there. The same newspaper article recounted the story of Leon Marischal and his daughter Mary, aged 14, who visited the police headquarters one night with an interesting story. Mary, her father said, was a medium and had communicated with the Ghosts of the Alamo. Amused but skeptical, the officer in charge, Captain Jacob Coy, invited the pair to have a seat and give it a try. Marechal hypnotized Mary, who said in a faint voice that she saw men. She called them spirits of the Alamo. She said that they were searching for a half a million and twenty dollar gold pieces that had been buried in the walls. Captain Coy asked for more details on the location of the coins, and she pointed vaguely to the corner of the Alamo on a map just before she came out of her trance, after which she and her father left the office, disappearing into the night. Another buried treasure legend states that the defenders hid what few valuables they had in one of the mission bells and buried it. But no coins and no treasure have ever been found at the Alamo. Not that anyone's allowed to look. Park rangers have reported seeing a somewhat transparent figure holding a flintlock rifle and wearing a coonskin cap and buckskin clothing at various locations around the Alamo, and that is assumed to be Davy Crockett or one of his men, such as stout-hearted Tennesseans Captain John Blair and Samuel Blair, or Jesse Bowman, Lieutenant Robert Campbell, George Washington Cottle, or Joseph Bayless. When the newspapers voiced the deconstruction of the historic Mission San Antonio de Valero, sightings of ghosts wandering the grounds of that church began to be reported, almost all of them coming from the guests staying at the Menger Hotel, just across the plaza. My friends in Texas tell me that the Menger is the place to stay if you're doing an Alamo trip, so I'll share a bit of the Hotel Menger story to enrich the experience while you're unpacking your bags and setting up your ghost finder equipment. By the way, at some point here in the next few months, I'll be doing a feature on the 10 most popular spots in the U.S. for ghost hunter trips, which are getting more and more popular these days. A 20-year-old German immigrant named William A. Menger answering the famous call of manifest destiny, arrived in San Antonio in the early 1840s when it was still very much a cattle barren town. A lot of Germans emigrated to Texas during the 1848 war in Germany, seeking freedom at a new start, and you'll notice some German names of towns in Texas like Fredericksburg and New Braunfels. About two million Texans today claim to be descendants of Germans. Menger wasted no time in settling in, Within a few years, he'd started the Western Brewery with his partner Charles Philip Deegan, who was another German brewmaster. Western Brewery was not only the first brewery in Texas, but by 1878, it had also grown to become the largest operating brewery in the Lone Star State. Western Brewery had been built on part of the site on which the Battle of Alamo had transpired. Just outside of the original Alamo site was a boarding house owned by a widow, Mary Gunther. As it turns out. Mary was one of the first people that Menger met when he moved to San Antonio. While looking for prospective job opportunities, Menger had made Mary's boarding house his home for three years. He finally married Mary Gunther. Both their businesses thrived, and soon the boarding house needed to be expanded. They had the money now, and the dream, and the dream was to turn the boarding house into an opulent hotel, so they hired an architect to make it a reality. The Menger became the fanciest hotel in Texas, a two-story stone-cut classic with a lobby that would take your breath away. William Menger continued to operate his brewery business and actually had a large cellar constructed under the hotel itself. Three-foot-thick stone walls formed an underground space that was used to chill the beer produced by the brewery. A tunnel ran between the two establishments so that Menger, who was naturally proud of his fine-tasting brew, could bring guests to the hotel next door to sample and tour the brewery. The Menger received so much attention that within three months of the grand opening, the Mengers began to sketch out a plan to expand the hotel. What had started out as a 50-room hotel, then became a 90-room hotel, making it the largest hotel in Texas. Then the Civil War came, and yes, Texas saw its share of that as well, a fact that doesn't often reach the history books. They also saw a lot of Indian trouble as the Indians were taking advantage of the sparsity of federal forces at that time as well. The Civil War placed a heavy weight on business for the Mengers. The number of people coming to stay at the hotel slowed down dramatically, and William was forced to shut the establishment down, for paying guests at any rate. In an attempt to show their support for the war efforts, they instead chose to open the hotel's door for the sick and wounded. For the length of the war, the Menger was converted into a makeshift hospital for those who were sick or gravely wounded. Many passed away there during this period, unable to regain their health. In March of 1871, William Menger passed away at the hotel. His death was met with grieving from the entire city, but the cause of his death remains a mystery even today. Prior to his death, the local newspaper had written, Our community can ill spare a gentleman of such public spirit, such enterprise, such generosity, and such wonderful energy. Menger had grown terribly ill, but with no autopsy performed on the hotelier's body, his death will always remain something of a mystery. A devastating fire hit the Munger Hotel in 1924. The guests made it out alive, but much of the new additions were destroyed. However, the bulk of the original hotel was saved. Over the years, the Menger Hotel has grown to be one of the most beautiful places to stay in all of Texas. The Menger became the home away from home for a host of personalities, such as actors Sarah Bernhardt and Lily Langtree. Notables such as General Robert E. Lee and Ulysses S. Grant, and authors such as William Sedney Porter. Sidney Lanier, and Oscar Wilde. And you and I at 1001 Classic Short Stories have come to know William Sidney Porter as O. Henry. One of the most famous of all the Menger's guests was a 750-pound alligator named Bill, who was left there by a lodger who didn't pay his bill and was allowed to roam the atrium freely in the early 1900s. So we've established the fact that the Menger has a unique personality and a unique history. Now it's time to establish the fact that it's also a popular stayover for ghosts, As the Menger puts it, there's a bit of dispute on how many ghosts still haunt the halls of this historic hotel. Some put the number of specters at 32, others claim that the number might be closer to 45. One thing we know for sure is that the Menger isn't just haunted, it's haunted. Yes, there's a difference. Guests have reported countless paranormal phenomena, including everything from witnessing beds actually levitate off the floor to hearing strange rapping noises and even seeing nearly translucent faces appear beside their own while looking into the mirror. The scent of cigar smokers inhaled in the hotel's non-smoking rooms and heavy doors are known to open, with no source to have actually pushed them ajar. And who is responsible for all of this paranormal activity? Unlike many other haunted locations across the country, the Menger's ghosts aren't shy in the slightest. If you choose to stay the night at the Menger... Remember the Boy Scout motto, and be prepared. Teddy Roosevelt was a huge fan of the Menger Hotel, so much so that he visited on three different occurrences. Even so, his first visit is certainly his most memorable, for it was in 1898 that Teddy arrived in San Antonio with his infamous Rough Riders. Today, it is said that people see his ghost in the Menger Bar from time to time. Arriving in 1898, the leading colonel set up recruitment headquarters in the patio area of the Menger. Teddy joined not 11 days later, and there was not a single doubt that the recruits were a mixed-match lot. While some were Teddy's classmates from Harvard, others were Native Americans, Texas cowboys, rangers, and random folk who enlisted to fight in the Spanish-American War. They had appropriately earned their nickname after a Washington, D.C. correspondent called them a Rough Riding Outfit. We did an episode at 1001 Stories for the Road titled, Meet the Rough Riders, and it was definitely an interesting bunch. Although they only remained in San Antonio for a month, the locals preferred to call the men Teddy's Terrors instead. One could say that the Motley group had left a certain impression on the people of San Antonio. Those who had survived the war and life itself returned to the Menger Hotel for a reunion in 1905, Teddy Roosevelt among them. It seems that even though a hundred years have passed since, many of the Rough Riders still like to camp out at the Menger. Even more, the ghost of Teddy Roosevelt is one of the most frequently seen ghosts at the menger. Almost always, he's seen or heard at the bar. When staff closes up at night, they've seen a man appear by the bar. His nearly translucent figure never moves, never shifts. Nevertheless, staff have reported feeling as though they're being watched at all times. Sometimes, however, the ghost of Teddy Roosevelt is much more vocal. Seated at the bar, he's been known to holler out at the workers, easily coercing them into conversation. On the rare occurrences when staff have actually approached the very real-looking apparition, he is said to start with his recruiting tactics as though trying to rope them into joining the Rough Riders. For the most part, the Menger's staff don't seem to fear Teddy, but on one particular night, that wasn't the case at all. This man was a new employee, and perhaps that was his first mistake. He'd been tasked with closing the bar down that night. When he was almost finished, he heard a distinct sound behind him. Whipping around, the employee spotted a man appear at the bar. Teddy was just doing his thing, staring intently as he often did with other staff, but the new employee panicked at the sight of the apparition. Terrified, he hastened to the doors to leave the bar, but later realizing that he'd been locked in. From then on, things went downhill fast. Terror running through his veins, the employee curled his hands into fists and hit the door with all of his might. It's uncertain how long he kept it up, that banging on the door nor is it known how long Teddy's ghost just stood there, watching the man practically claw at the doors in his attempt to escape. After a while, it seems you just give up, go, and sit down next to him, hoping he would either disappear or offer you a drink. When another member of staff finally heard the frightened employee's screams for help, the door was unlocked, but the damage had been done. The employee had been scared out of his wits. Even after he'd regained a modicum of his composure and explained what had happened, he refused to re-enter the bar area. He quit not long after. But it's safe to say that Teddy Roosevelt's ghost has not quit the Menger because sightings continue to this day. Then there's Sally White, and she's a favorite at the Menger. Sally White was one of the Menger Hotel's most beloved staff members during the late 19th century. She was the good sort, the sort of person who took pleasure in completing her daily duties as a chambermaid. Though at work Sally was all smiles, the same couldn't be said for her life at home. Her common-law husband, Harry Wheeler, was the jealous sort, and stories circulated the hotel that Wheeler was always jealous of any attention given to his wife. His jealousy sparked endless arguments, some of them even transpiring at Sally's place of work. On March 28th of 1876, Harry Wheeler's jealousy would take a deadly turn. On the evening before, one of Harry and Sally's rows had escalated quickly. Wheeler wheeled around on Sally, closing in on her. He was furious, and he threatened to kill her. Panic kicked up Sally's steps as she ran from her husband to the local police station. She begged the officers to help her. They agreed, allowing her to stay at the courthouse for the remainder of the night. An investigation of Wheeler himself and their house showed no signs of any weapons, leaving the officers without any sort of leverage to arrest Harry Wheeler and put him in jail. Early the next morning, Sally returned to her house to gather some items before heading to work at the manger. But he'd been waiting for her, and he'd been waiting with a fully loaded pistol. When she saw that, she ran. Bursting out of their shared home, she ran down the street, hoping, praying to close the two-block gap to the Menger Hotel where she could find safety. But Wheeler was faster. He followed her down those two blocks, and when he caught up, he closed his hand around her throat and unloaded the six-shooter, shooting her once in the lower abdomen. And when she squirmed out of his tight grasp, he fired again and shot her just to the left of her spine. Sally White died two days later in in one of the third-floor rooms of the original part of the hotel. Harry Wheeler never was arrested for the murder of his common-law wife. Where he went after the shooting, no one knows. Mary Menger and the other management at the hotel had loved poor Sally White so much that they decided to fund Sally's funeral costs. The 1876 receipt can still be found in the lobby of the Menger Hotel, in which they paid cash for Sally White, quote, chambermaid, deceased, murdered by her husband. Today, Sally White's ghost is still seen frequently throughout the hotel, but most especially on the third floor where she passed over a hundred years ago. It seems that even in death, for she's most commonly seen clutching an armful of towels or sheets to her chest. So when that young lady in an older style uniform, wearing a scarf, delivers those extra towels to your room, be sure not to act surprised when she leaves by walking through the closed door. On two separate occasions, guests reported seeing Sally's ghost walk through a door or a wall as though the barrier posed no problem to the otherworldly specter. Always her hands were full of sheets and towels. On the second occasion, the guest had just gotten out of the shower when she saw Sally's apparition folding sheets at the edge of her bed. Shock hit her squarely in the gut, followed quickly by pure fear, and the guest hightailed it down the stairs to the front desk and told the concierge everything she had seen. For those hoping to see Sally for yourself... Make sure to book your room on the third floor of the original section of the hotel. Keep a look up for a nearly translucent form wearing a maid's uniform, a scarf tied around her head, and a locked necklace of beads. And if all else fails, perhaps mess up your sheets a bit. It just might be her cue that you need her afterlife assistance. And then there's the ghosts of the Alamo. One of the most commonly spotted ghosts at the old mission is that of a blonde-haired boy. He's seen most often in the upstairs left window, which is now part of the Alamo's gift shop. As the story goes, it's believed that the little boy was evacuated during the siege of the Alamo. Though he survived, it's thought that perhaps his parents did not, and his spirit returns over and over again to the site where he last saw them. His ghost is seen most frequently during the month of February. Then there's the Mexican soldier. Along the outer walls of the Alamo, the ghostly figure of what is believed to be a Mexican soldier has been seen by tourists and locals alike. Meandering the grounds, his hands are always clasped behind his back his chin tilted down, and he's shaking his head somberly. Although it can't be proven, this ghostly soldier is believed to be General Manuel Fernandez de Castrillon, one of Santa Ana's commanders, who refused to lay siege to the Alamo. It was Castrion who brought the last six surviving men to Santa Ana to allow them to surrender, but Santa Ana refused them and ordered their executions. At the very beginning, we promised to tell you a John Wayne Alamo ghost story, and here it is. There are all kinds of ghosts reported to be haunting the Alamo, and one of them is that of the famous actor John Wayne. This doesn't surprise me, as the Duke's greatest professional passion was to film a movie about the Alamo. Now, many of you know that they had to recreate the Alamo in Brackettville, Texas, which at first look would suggest that he spent very little time there at the Alamo. But in reality, he and his set designer spent a lot of time there doing extensive research at the Alamo because he wanted to get every detail right. In 1950, Ten years before the filming of the Alamo, Wayne started looking into possible filming locations for the movie that he wanted to become his trademark project. He took his wife, Chata, to Central America, where, between the constant arguments he suffered in her company, he began to search for the right location. In 1952, after completing the filming of The Quiet Man in Ireland, Wayne returned to Hollywood to try to convince Republic Film CEO Yates to go in with him on filming the Alamo. But Yates wouldn't hear of it which really tore up John Wayne, whose relationship with the Republic ended. And it didn't work out well for Republic. Two years later, they were little more than a television production company. By 1956, the Duke was still putting all the money he could into his future dream of making the Alamo movie. In 1958, United Artists said they would contribute a sizable share if the Duke would play Crockett, which he didn't want to play. He just wanted to direct the film. But United Artists had got their way. They would put $7.5 in if he would raise the rest. The Duke and his son, Michael Wayne, supervised the building of the huge Alamo set. There's a long story to the making of the 1960 movie The Alamo, but in the end, the Duke got his dream, although it nearly bankrupted him. In truth, he was trying to make a statement about freedom and about this country, which he was intensely proud of. Wayne's daughter, Aissa, who played a child in a brief scene in the movie, said, I think making the Alamo became my father's own form of combat. More than an obsession, it was the most intensely personal project in his career. As you might expect, the left tore it apart afterwards, the same as they did with the Green Berets. But you can bet that Wayne went to his deathbed knowing he'd done everything he could to teach Americans that the price of freedom and liberty doesn't come cheap. He didn't just play the roles. He lived it, and that's why so many people loved him. Visitors to the Alamo began reporting seeing his ghost talking with some of the fallen defenders soon after he died in 1979. He's no doubt telling them that they didn't die for nothing. Thanks for joining us here for 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. We do appreciate reviews, and we appreciate your sharing our show with others. We also ask that you think about supporting us at patreon.com forward slash 1001storiesnetwork. For about the cost of a blended coffee each month, you can help support 1001 and help us get to 2001 stories, which we're very busy doing. I appreciate our listeners very, very much. And right now, it does look like that by December 31st, we should reach 5 million listens for the year. Thank you so much for being a part of that. Until next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.